0: Bandwidth for changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Error monitoring is provided by Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com changelog. This episode is brought to you by Rollbar. Rollbar is real-time error monitoring, alerting, and analytics that helps you resolve production errors in minutes. And I talked with Paul Baker, the founder of CircleCI, a trusted customer of Rollbar, and he says they don't deploy a service without installing Rollbar first. Is that crucial to them.
1: We operate at serious scale, and literally the first thing we do when we create a new service is, is we install Rollbar in it. Like We, we need to have that visibility, uh, and without that visibility, it would be impossible to run at the scale we do and certainly with the number of people that we have. Like we're a relatively small team operating a major service and without the visibility that Robar gives us into our exceptions, it just, it just wouldn't be possible.
0: Alright, to start deploying with confidence just like Paul and the team at CircleCI head to Robar.com slash changelog once again Robar.com slash changelog Welcome back, everybody. This is The Changelog, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. Today on the show, we're talking with Todd Gamblin, a computer scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. And we got Moore's Law wrong on a recent episode of The Changelog, episode 267, as a matter of fact. And Todd hopped in Slack and said, hey, guys, you got it wrong. We should talk about it. And that's what the show's about. We talked about Moore's Law, his work at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, the components of a microchip, supercomputers,
1: and high-performance computing. Todd, we got Moore's Law a little bit wrong in our episode with Eric Norman. That was episode 267 about functional programming, and we were talking about Moore's Law, and I might have even mentioned on the show how lots of people get Moore's Law wrong, and then (laughs) I got it wrong. (laughs) So, uh, you know, uh, embarrassed face is happening. But you were uh, gracious enough to hop into our Slack, which is is a place that we hang out and talk about. Uh, our shows and programming topics and random things blockchain mostly Um, a lot of blockchain a lot of blockchain (laughs) in there and uh, hop in our slack community and straighten us out a bit about it and the particulars and so we thought well um, if we need schooling perhaps more people than just us need a little bit of schooling so first of all thanks for coming on the changelog and secondly uh, straighten us out on Moore's Law and what it what it actually is.
2: So I don't I don't necessarily think that it was completely wrong on the show. Yes. Like The gist of what you guys said was was fine that, you know, chips are there's no more free lunch. You don't get free performance out of your chips anymore like you used to when you know, the clock speed was going up rapidly. Right. Um, but um, Moore's Law is not dead. Although I mean, it, you, it's fair to be confused because there have been a lot of articles written about this. There, yeah. there, are, there was an article in the MIT Review that said Moore's Law is dead. Now what? Um, but it you know predicted the death of Moore's Law I think out in the twenty you know, twenties, um, and Intel CEO says Moore's Law is fine. Um, you know the, the chips are going to continue to improve. So I think it's kind of hard to to see what is really uh, what's really happening in right. the in the processor landscape. So I mean, what Moore's law actually says is that um, the number of transistors that you can cram on a chip doubles every 18 to 24 months. And so it, that's the part that is still relatively true, although it's slowing down. Um, and I think, you know, the, the interesting thing and and the thing that, that people typically get confused with this is, um, so there's something else called Dennard scaling um, that broke down around 2006. Um, okay. And I think that's, that's what has led to us having all these multi-core chips now um, where you, know, you got a lot of performance out of your single-core chips before. Um, and so what Dennard scaling says is that um, as, your, um, as your transistors get smaller, um, the, the, uh, the voltage and current stay proportional to that. So effectively, your power density is the same for um, a smaller transistor. Than it is, uh, as it is for a larger one. Mm. So uh, what that means is that you can basically jack up the uh, the the frequency or the the voltage on the chip um, as as you scale the number of transistors, and so um, you get clock speed for free uh, over time. And just and so, by
1: increasing the power.
2: Yeah, that's uh, just yeah, just by increasing the frequency as you scale it mm-hmm. down. So it, the chips have effectively the same. Uh, power the power for the area that you're you're putting all those transistors in, right? You want to keep the okay. power envelope relatively constant because you're putting it in a device like I don't know, well these days like a phone right. um, or you know a desktop computer, and you don't want someone to have a really high power desktop machine that ramps up their power bill, right? Right. Um, so you know you've got a fixed power envelope. You're increasing the number of transistors, and it used to be that you could also increase the clock speed, um, but because of the breakdown of Dennard scaling you see that in like 2006 um, or around there, uh, the chips are kind of capped out at like, you know, two and a half uh, gigahertz now. Right. right? Like they're, they're all sort of hovering around there. They get up to three sometimes. And then like, you can find like four uh, gigahertz monsters in like some of the uh, bigger IBM, like system Z systems. Um, But, but effectively it's kind of capped out there. I don't know if you remember, like I, I had 100 megahertz computers back in the day or you know, even I think my Apple IIgs was like maybe kilohertz. I'm not even remembering,
1: but um, I don't think I go back quite that far. Yeah. You might go back a little <laughs> nope. further than Adam and I in that regard. I've always been in the megahertz. I know that <laughs> I was in the megahertz. I think it was like maybe my first was like 750 megahertz, somewhere around there. Oh, wow. So you been, guys are picking up like, yeah, that would have been 90s. like late 90s. Yep, exactly. I do recall having a
0: yeah. a, a four gig drive. Was my first computer. And then the second one, I had a 20 gig drive. Okay. So, I mean, that's, I sort of like don't relate it so, back, so much back to the chip, but most, mostly like how much space that I have to put stuff on. Sure. Which sort of like relates to the chip era because it kind of goes in a similar scale.
1: Yeah, they go hand in hand. Yeah. So you're, you got a little bit of seniority on us there, uh, Todd. But nonetheless, light, we light definitely, up. yeah, we've, we've definitely seen the, the topping out. I mean, I'm on a, a uh, what does it say, 20? 16 macbook pro and i got a 3.1 gigahertz so that's like yeah two and a half three like you said in the in the more server products you might have four gigahertz but that's what definitely has stopped
2: yeah and the the reason that that's broken down is that so Den- dennard scaling ignores current leakage and and so as people s- packed all these transistors on the chip um you get something called a thermal runway where you know you you can't you can't pack them that close without having um, a whole lot of power on the on the die. Um, so you're basically are, are capped at how much clock speed you can you can have. Um, but what they do is you know you, you can still get these multi-core chips now, right? Like the number of cores on your chip has definitely been increasing. And so um, that's what they're using the transistors for. Where they used to, you know, pack more uh, transistors into things like out-of-order execution um, and other stuff on the on the die. Um, Now you're just building out and replicating um, chips of effectively the same size on the same, you know, on well cores of effectively the same size on the chip. And so you're that's what your multi-core CPUs are doing. They're becoming their own little massively parallel machines.
1: Hmm. So even and back in that show, even then we were talking about the the proliferation of cores, at least at the consumer level, um, hasn't gone crazy in terms of you know you're still t- talking about two core, four core, eight core. Sure. Um, probably from your from your purview inside the, the supercomputer labs, you can tell us about what 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 machinery looks like inside there. But um, is that something that has also hit a threshold, or it's just slowed to where? It doesn't make sense, maybe like you said, inside the same thermal envelope to have thirty-two cores on a on a laptop, for instance.
2: Um, so I actually am not hundred percent clear on why they haven't, you know, jacked up the number of cores on on a laptop. Um, I mean, I, I would assume that it's because people don't need that many cores that much, and also because most of the parallelism that you're going to want to do. On a desktop machine is going to be on the GPU, and all, and on like the phones, they have a lot of specialized hardware for things like video uh-huh. processing, and, like all this these like AI units and things like that, which is interesting right. and has a lot to do with like, you know, the eventual death of Moore's law too. But yeah, on on the supercomputers, I mean, we're we buy the same, you know, effectively the same chips, um, at least for some of the machines as um as your desktop machines. So like our commodity clusters, as we call them. Their Linux boxes with with Intel and you know maybe AMD chips, um, and and we're seeing you know a, a large increase in on node parallelism. So like where we might not have you know more cores per um, per chip than what your desktop would have, we have a lot of sockets in the machines, and so the the amount of on node parallelism that's there is is pretty high,
1: hmm. and
2: we try to use all that.
1: So where do you see this all going in terms of Moore's law? You said that it was said that it would be dying in the 2020s. We're getting near that so range. Plus. But you're, you know, prognosticate out for us. What's it look like in the next five years?
2: Um, so, I mean, I think next five years, I, I, I think you'll see the, the rate of transistors that get packed on the chip start to slow down. Um, mm-hmm. I think... I, currently the number of transistors on the chip is doubling at I think two uh, X every three years instead of every, every, you know, one and a half. So it is, yeah. it is slowing. Um, and then, you know, once that goes away, um, you're going to have to figure out how to take advantage of, uh, or how to increase your speed other ways. Um, and so what that means in the hardware universe is I think you'll start to see a lot more specialized hardware. You're kind of already seeing that, right? Like on the like I like we were talking about on the on the mobiles, you've got like the iPhone 10 has this like bionic processor or whatever it is. Right. Um on you've got like custom GPUs and things. I mean, a lot of the processing that happens on your phone is just offloaded. And and most of that is for like power consumption, because you can do it a lot more efficiently in hardware. I think you're gonna see Like HPC sites start to shift towards, um, you know, different architectures that can, you know, make use of the same number of transistors more effectively for their particular workload. So you'll see a lot more specialization, Um, but you're not going to, you know, it's basically if the number of transistors that you can fit on a chip um, becomes constant, then... The only way that you can get more speed is to make more effective use of them. You can't continue getting performance either in terms of more parallelism or in terms of higher clock speed. Right. Because physics.
0: Maybe for those out there that are like catching up and trying to maybe, maybe just trying to follow along to some degree if they're not schooled in transistors and chips. Can you break down what a chip is and like what the components of it are and the thresholds we've kind of gone over the years and where we're at today? Is that possible?
2: Sure. Yeah, we could talk about that some. I mean, if at the lowest level, I mean, people talk about transistors, um, and and what a transistor is is it's a it's a thing that if you apply current to it, it changes the conductivity of um of the of the material. And so, what that means is that if you you know think of it as a wire with another wire coming into it, if you if you put some current on that thing, then the the first wire either conducts or it doesn't, and all that means is that now, now you have the ability. You have a switch, so you can build out you know, more complex logic from that switch. That's the fundamental thing that enables us to build computers, and they can build that now by etching it on silicon. So there's a they they oxidize silicon. That's what all these you know fabs and and big chip uh, plants are doing. Um, they they etch lots of transistors onto silicon by with chemical reactions, um, and there's different processes for doing that. And so those processes are what um, what enable us to to cram more transistors on the chip over time. Um, it's it's improvements to them. And I mean, I'm not a process scientist, so I I don't know a whole lot about that. Um, but but effectively, you know, Moore's law originated when Gordon Moore in 1965 observed that that process had resulted in the effective doubling of transistors. Um, every, I think 18 months or, or two years back mm-hmm. in, in 1965, he was looking at like the range from 1958 to 1965. And so that, that's where that comes from. So um, it was a general comment
0: you that turn into law.
2: Um, it's an observation. observation I, I wouldn't yeah. say that it's a law. You can't go to jail for violating Moore's law. We call it Moore's law. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, <laughs> which is, we call Don't a lot of things. cross
1: more, laws. you'll go to jail. That's right. Yeah. We call them law until they get broken and they're like, well.
2: Even the, even the way that it's usually stated, right, eighteen to twenty-four months, is fairly vague, right? And right. It's just it's an observation of the cadence with which they can double the number of transistors on a chip. Right. Um. And it's held pretty true. Moore thought it would hold for I think ten years, um. And it's actually held you know since 1965 pretty well. So it's it's somewhat remarkable in that sense. So you know it it's it's more than just an observation when it holds for you know, many many more yeah. years than you you thought it would. And but it's somewhat so been it,
1: co-opted. It's somewhat been co-opted and transformed into meaning general compute power doubling, and that's kind of the that yes. was the way that we were using it. And in fact, when I was looking it up a little bit here, um, in an Intel executive, I think in the '90s, he said that chip performance would double every 18 months, um, as opposed to transistor density, and that's the general context. Of what what most you know, programmers and technologists talk about Moore's laws generally, computing power, and not the specific right. thing that Moore was talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: well, because the computing power is what enables you to do more and more with your computer, right? Right. I mean, you can you can do many more computations. The thing gets faster. It's good. Um, I mean, I think the main consequence of of the the breakdown there is that, you know, you don't get as much single thread performance as you used to. That's kind of capped out. So you know, you're right. If you're using Microsoft Word or something like you know you're you're typing or or something that you know has to has to execute sequentially is not going to um, go any faster. Um, but if you can get parallelism out of your workload, um, then uh, you know then you can actually harness all the power that's on your chip. And and the difference is that if if you increase this clock frequency, that just means that everything on your chip is happening faster. So that's effectively free. If you had a program that ran on an older chip. It would run just the same on the newer chip, just faster. Um, whereas with parallelism, um, if you want to harness that performance, you actually have to rework your program, divvy it up. And so mm-hmm. I think that yeah, you have to divide it up into into smaller chunks, or figure out a way to do it. it might involve like changing your whole algorithm, um, and that's that's a lot harder. Um, and not all workloads can do that, and you know not all consumer workloads can do that. So it's interesting to see how this will pan out on on consumer chips. Although I think you know with, with all this machine learning stuff going on now, um, it's not like there's a shortage of numerically intensive things, uh, to do on, on your desktop machine or on your, on your phone. Um, you know, there's, or games like have always taken advantage of things. We could talk about GPUs some, I mean, that's, that's a, GPUs are an interesting design point, right? Like I think in the, uh, in the functional programming, Podcast you were mentioning earlier. You guys mentioned that, you know, oh, people told me I was going to have thousands of cores. Where are my thousands of cores? And I think, you know, the answer is they're in your GPU mm. um, because that's a very different workload from uh, what your your desktop CPU is doing. It's it's data parallel. And so, you know, it's, it's easy to divide up um, the work that you have to do for graphics rendering. Um, and so you, the GPUs are basically these large parallel, they call them vector processors because they do, you know, lots of the same type of instruction at once. Um, and there's, you know, I think in a GV100 Volta, there's, I think, like 5,000 cores on that thing if you count CUDA cores. People debate wow. whether or not you should count CUDA core as a real core because it's definitely not the same thing as the the CPU in your system. But, I mean, it is, it, it's 5,000 way parallel. That's true.
1: You can do that wow. many operations at once. Yeah. But very specific use case, not general purpose.
0: Well, you brought in a new terminology, though, too, in this in this conversation. You got chip. You got – so I'm still trying to paint the picture of what this thing is. But you brought in a new term called cores. You mentioned it earlier, too, but you got the chip made of silicon, and you got transistors on that. Where do the cores come into play? What are cores?
2: Okay. So what people used to just call a chip – because you only had one core, is, is a core. A core is basically a microprocessor. Um, although even that term is kind of fuzzy these days, because you can say the microprocessor has multiple cores. I mean, it's people, you're right, there's a lot of ambiguity. <laughs> um, <I> was, <laughs> okay, so let's, let's go back to the transistors um, and, and, and build it up from there.
0: I mean, so, And then we can go to the GPUs, because that's where I want to go. Yeah,
2: yeah okay. I, th- I think that's the interesting direction. So we talked about, tra- you've got transistors on the chip, you can use those to do switching. That enables you to build what they call logic gates, and and you can do things like and, or, not. Um, basically, you're taking two signals and you're producing a result. So, you know, one and one is is one, one and zero is zero, and so on. Right? That's just that's basic logic. You mm-hmm. can take that, and it turns out you can build anything uh, with that. You can build if you if you have a NAND gate, basically a not and gate then you can build whatever you want Um, and so there's lots of ways to do that um, but effectively they build this whole chip out of that and and that's they're they're putting that logic on on the die and that implements you know what what people recognize as a modern cpu and so like if we're coming at this from like a high level high level language you know i think most of the listeners here are familiar with you know javascript or ruby python or even c those either get interpreted or compiled into machine instructions, and effectively, what you're using, you're taking all these logic gates, and and you're building something that that fetches instructions from memory, um, it fetches data from memory. The instructions tell the processor to do something with that data, and then they write it back to memory. And that's pretty much how your chip works. Um, so, if if you have that that pipeline where you can you can pull instructions from memory, you can do stuff to to numbers and write it back to memory, um, then that's that's effectively what a modern you know, uh, core, I guess, looks like that's a, that's a processor. Um, you can, you can run programs on that. And so it used to be that you had one core, um, on the chip and, and so, and that was what you did. You had one thread of execution. Um, you you would fetch an instruction, you'd do what it said, you'd write the result back to memory and you would, um, go on and, and fetch the next one and do what it said. And there's just a whole lot of optimizations that have happened, um, over the course of, of processor history that led to, you know, what we have today, um, chips in, in specter and meltdown have been in the news recently. So think the chips do things like speculative execution. They can say, Hey, um, I'm not going to know whether I want to execute this stream of instructions for a little while. Um, but while I'm waiting to figure it out, um, can I go and try that? And then as we found out, you can get bugs from that, but it's also a huge mm-hmm. performance increase. Um, there's things like just out regular out of order execution, um, where is effectively, like your chip has logic on it that looks at the instructions coming in. It figures out the dependencies between them, um, and it it figures out which ones don't have any dependencies right now in terms of you know data that they need to read or results of other calculations in the instruction stream. It'll pull those and it'll execute those instructions concurrently or um, with uh, with other ones that, that don't have any dependencies. And so that that's called a um, an out-of-order processor, or sometimes people call it a superscalar processor, because it can execute more than one instruction at once. Um, there's vectorization. So, like, the, there's some. Most chips have some, you know, types of instructions that will do multiple things at once. So, if you know that you have, you know, four numbers lined up in memory and you want to multiply them all by two, you you can pull them all in at once and do those operations all at once if they're if they're the same. And so there's there's lots of these different sequential optimizations that people have done, um, and that's what goes into your one chip. And so now um, that you have you know all of these uh, extra transistors, because you can't increase the clock speed on the one chip or on the on the one core, um, People are building out the number of cores that they have on a chip. And so they basically just, you know, they they have the same core. They're not making it, they're not trying to cram too much into that one core and increasing the power density to the point that it would cause problems. But they're just scaling that out um, with the number of transistors.
1: Does that make sense? Totally. It's it's still, when when you sit back and think about it, it's still mind-numbingly awesome what we Mm -hmm. can actually build out of those core primitives. Like you, just where we've gotten from where from where it starts, you, don't, you you take it for granted. You don't think about it much, but when you do, you sit back and think about it all ones and zeros and logic gates at the bottom of it all. What we actually can create yeah. out of that has been amazing.
0: That's true.
2: Oh, there's tons of layers. And I mean, yeah. if you think about it, that people started out just programming to the the chip, right? Like, if you right. if you got a new machine, you know, back you know, say in the founding days of this laboratory, um, you know, 1952, you would read the manual and you know the instructions that you would, the way that you, the programmer manual had assembly code in it. It said, "Here's the instructions you can execute on this chip. This is what it can do." And you'd have to actually you know think about memory and you know what um, how you're you know managing it, what you're pulling into the core, how much memory you have, and things like that um and now you know you don't even think about that you can you can instantiate things in dynamically you you don't have Mm -hmm. to think very much about memory in most of the modern languages and it's it's a pretty nice ecosystem um i mean i think you know the the reason that the multi-core stuff doesn't i think change your perception of uh, what's going on on the computer quite as much or at least from a programming perspective is i mean one reason is that there are a lot of multi-threaded programs and even your operating system is you know even before you had multi-core chips, your operating system was um, executing multiple things at the same time. It was just doing it by time sharing. and, and what the, and so you know what a context switch is uh-huh. It's when you're you're executing one program, and then you know the OS says, "Oh, well, there's this other thing that's running at the same time. I'm going to swap that in, um execute it for a little bit, then I'm going to preempt it and switch back to the other thing that you were doing. And effectively, that's how your OS did multitasking. Um, before you had multi-core chips, is, is by just splitting up the, by switching back and forth between different tasks really rapidly. Um, and now, you know, on, on your chip, you really can have things executing actually in parallel. And so it, it's, to some extent, it's kind of a natural transition, right? Because you can just execute different threads on different cores. Um, and the operating system has to manage that. Um, but you still have context switching too. So, you know, you can still execute many more tasks on your chip than you have cores.
0: This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced new, highly competitive droplet pricing on their standard plans on both the high and the low-end scale of their pricing. They introduced a new, flexible $15 plan where you can mix and match resources like RAM and the number of CPUs. And they're now leading the pack on CPU-optimized droplets, which are ideal for data analysis or CI pipelines. And they're also working on per-second billing. Here's a quote from the recent blog post on the new drop of plans. Quote, we understand that price-to-performance ratios are of the utmost consideration when you're choosing a hosting provider and we're committed to being a price-to-performance leader in the market. As we continue to find ways to optimize our infrastructure, we plan to pass those savings on to you, our customers. End quote. Head to do.co slash law to get started. New accounts get $100 of hosting credit to use in your first 60 days. Once again, at the do.co slash changelog.
1: Well, Moore's Law is not dead, but dying. Murphy's Law, however eternally true. Still you know the still law? still true. <laughs> yes. Will always be true. Adam, you know that one? Yes. Murphy's law. Yeah, yeah, that's a
2: that's a real law.
1: Yes. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong.
2: So, true. I guess if if you want to get back to, to the Moore's law, law dying aspect, I think GPUs are a good example of, you know, one way that you can take more effective advantage of some transistors um and, and sort of combat that that power law. Um or the, you know, the the Dennard scaling problem. Um, The GPUs are, are in terms of the number of uh, operations you can do on them, you get a lot more performance per watt um, if you can exploit them than you do out of a CPU. So if you can actually, if you have a workload that's data parallel, you can pose it that way, Um, then you can execute it more efficiently on a GPU than you can on on the CPU. Um, and, And so that's, and you have like five thousand cores on there, right? It's it's a it's a big scale out machine. It's doing mm-hmm. vector stuff. Um, it's very power efficient, and you know that's that's one way to use the transistors more effectively for certain workloads than for the CPU. And I think you know that's that's where you're going. You're going to see other types of technologies take over that are better at certain tasks. I think you know in our community, the other places that you know, people are looking, um, is so there's quantum computing. People talk about that a lot. Oh, um,
1: I want to talk about that.
2: Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> Put that on the sideline. I can't say is... too much about it. Okay. Not an expert, but I mean, we have there's like a whole beyond Moore's law thrust in DOE and I think in the broader CS research uh, you know, funding agencies.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, What's the DOE?
2: The Department of Energy.
0: Okay, just to be clear for for those not in the U.S. and hearing acronyms to, to know what they're talking about.
2: Yeah, we could do like the, the we didn't do the origin story uh, thing at the beginning, which. We could do. You can listen to guys- yeah, I think
0: there's some in that show to some degree about where you work and what you do, and so I'm pretty sure that's how Nadia opened it up. Right.
2: Um. Yeah. That's that's true. So we could talk about the DOE some later. Um. DOE is where I work. I work at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and and you know we care about high performance computing. Um. So yeah, quantum computing is one way that um you know you can use a different type of technology to do computation uh so far people haven't really you know they, they've shown that it's useful for certain problems so like there's a d-wave system los alamos has a, um, a d-wave system that they're looking at It's a, it's a type of quantum computer that can do something called quantum annealing which allows you to solve certain optimization problems very fast but again you know that's a different model of computation it's not like a script. It's it's another type of thing. So if you have to do optimization mm-hmm. problems, that's a good thing to use, um, and you can do it really fast. Um, there's uh, something called cognitive computing that we're looking at. So at Livermore, we have a partnership with IBM where we're looking at their True North texture, and they they call it a cognitive computer. Um, effectively, what it is is it's a chip that can that you can basically put a neural network on, and you can evaluate it very quickly. And so it's good for machine learning workloads. If you need to do some machine learning um, evaluation along with your your workload, where I'm distinguishing between like training and evaluation, then then you could potentially do it faster with the TrueNorth chip. And then you know to some extent there's there are limitations to how you can do that. You have to discretize the neural net a certain way so that it fits on the chip, um, and you can only do certain types of neural nets. Um, but you know th- you can pose a lot of different neural net problems that way. So we think it could be useful. Um, for helping to accelerate some of the simulations that we're doing, or to help to um, solve problems that are are really hard for humans to to optimize at at runtime, um, so that's another model.
1: Are there private sector equivalents, Todd, to these things that you're speaking of, or are these the the kinds of uh, things that you only find in uh, the public sector in terms of these the cognitive learning machines?
2: So I believe True North is available, and you could you could buy it um if you were in the private sector um it's an ibm product um i'm not 100 percent clear on whether it's just a research prototype that we're dealing with or whether you can actually uh, buy with these and play with them um, in industry but i mean i know that yeah i think some industry players have d-wave machines so they're playing with those so you know Mm -hmm. you can can get them around with them um i definitely think that you know it's still in the research phases um, in terms of what you would actually do with it yeah um the True North chip is interesting because it's a little closer in terms of you know actually deploying those because the people do have machine learning workloads right like and right. if they want to accelerate them they could use something like this um, to do that. Um, what it doesn't accelerate is the training. So you know you would still have these giant batch jobs to go and analyze data sets to build the neural net that you use to you know either to classify or to to analyze the data uh, once you're done training that thing.
1: Huh. But
2: I mean, I think the the theme across all these different areas is that you know it's it's more specialization and special and, purpose,
1: you
2: know, yeah. Huh.
1: So tell us real quick. So you mentioned you know you, you work at Lawrence Livermore uh, National Lab. What? Yes. So you have these specific use, and you said we care about high performance computing. Maybe explain the specific use cases. You know, as, as much as is public knowledge or you know not uh, top secret stuff that you sure. guys do and you're applying these technologies to do. To, to.
2: Okay. So I, I work for the department of energy. Um, I think, you know, the department of energy has been in the news as, you know, Trump has picked his, his cabinet lately. Um, it, it's, it's the part of, we, we deal with a couple of different things. Um, the, I think the DOE is uh, the biggest funder of, of science research in the U S alongside the NSF. Um, and you know, that, that involves funding, universities, it involves funding the national laboratories, um, and we're also in charge of managing the U.S. nuclear stockpile and making sure that it stays safe and reliable. Um, and so across all of those different scientific domains, um, there is a whole lot of physics simulation that needs to get done. Um, and, and effectively, you know, we are using simulation um, to look at things that you either, you know, can't design an experiment for, um, or that it's you know too expensive design to design an experiment for, or that it would just be you know unsafe to design an experiment for, or that you shouldn't design an experiment for. And I guess on on the NNSA side, so Lawrence Livermore is part of the National Nuclear Security Administration, which is under the DOE.
0: Okay.
2: Um, the the unsafe thing that we're looking at is you know how do nuclear weapons work. Um, and so that that's a lot of the simulation workload that takes place here. We also do other types of simulation like climate science. Um, we have a lot of people working on that. Um, we look at you know, fundamental material science, all of these big, either you know computational fluid dynamics or you know, astrophysical simulations, um, you know, geo uh, geological simulations, earthquake simulations, all these physical phenomena. we you know we have simulations at various you know degrees of resolution. Um, that we can look at to figure out you know what would happen if. So like we have right. some guys who've done predictions about earthquakes in the Bay Area. Where would the damage be? Um, we look at will this weapon continue to work? Um, we also do things like detection. like if if you had something like this type of device and someone was trying to ship it in a container, how might you figure out that it was there um, mm-hmm. without you know opening every container? Um, there's there are lots of things like that um, that the doe looks into um and and high performance computing drives um all those all sorts of different aspects of that yeah so and and i guess the other interesting um, facility here um that's in the news frequently is the national ignition facility which is a nuclear fusion experiment so we're trying to um make a little star um in in a big you know building the size of three football fields um where we've got like 192 lasers that fire at this little target and so simulating how the lasers um interact with the target how they deposit energy there um is you know one of the things that we can simulate on the machines here
1: you're you're, you're building a star inside of a big building
2: a little tiny star like a oh, tiny very well, to, spe-
1: me, to yeah. me every star is big i guess so a tiny star relative to other stars but a big building well
2: let me be clear it's it's a star in the sense that we're trying to get fusion burn to happen
1: Right. I was going to ask you, what's what exactly is a star then? I was just waiting for Adam to hop in because <laughs> this is like where he gets uh, super excited. His ears are perking up.
0: Uh, well, I've, I was still stuck back at the size of this this uh, True North. And I was thinking like yeah. the size of the thing. And I was actually thinking about at what point does – because these things are really, really small. At what point does a you know chip or a microchip or whatever you – however you want to term this – get so small that it gets to the very, very small, which if you study – physics and things like that you know life like we see it then you see the very very big which is planet sizes and you know universe sizes then you get the very very small which is like atom sizes like how small do these right. things get but then this star conversation is far more interesting to me
2: <laughs> oh. i like that so there's lots of physics that goes on in the department of energy so i guess i, I would shameless plug it's a, I can endorse the department of energy it's a good place to work because <laughs> you get to find out about stuff like yeah this. sounds um,
1: interesting and so
2: yeah so i mean yeah the interesting thing about NIF is that that's the National Ignition Facility. Is that you're simulating a star? It's very small. Um, it's it's you know the target is like a few millimeters in diameter, versus it, but you're trying to cause the same kind of fusion burn that would happen in like the sun,
0: and so it's all these lasers colliding, right? The light from these lasers colliding that create the fusion. Yeah,
2: burn. It, yeah, that's right. It's it's they the lasers come in, they hit this kind of cylindrical thing called a hohlraum made of gold um, that gets really hot x-rays come out of it and implode the target in the middle mm. um, and that's that's the idea
1: are you doing that a lot or are you simulating on computers and then doing it very few well, times saying
0: they could do it physically in this big
1: building but then, They're they doing have, it then these chips physically.
2: that he's
0: talking about they can do it simulated
2: this is a good example of you know the type of work we do so nif is um where you're trying to do it physically um, we're trying to get fusion burn there um, but To understand how this thing is working right um we have to do simulation to you know prototype the designs and i think we do about 400 real shots um in a year over at NIF, where we actually you know turn the lasers on point them at a target that's not too many yeah we well it's and, and we're ramping that up um it's a scientific facility so you can do research for lots of different groups yeah um in conjunction with that we do simulations to see if you know what we're simulating matches what really happened right and that's an iterative process so you do more simulations you say okay it matches how do i change the design to um you know do better to get you know more energy out um and then you go simulate that it says it's gonna do better you try it maybe it doesn't and then um, you iterate on that until the two match and ideally you know, that's, that's the process that we use for for designing these things um, so that's where the HPC comes in. Is you know, simulating something like that takes an awful lot of compute cycles. So, like I work in Livermore Computing, which is you know it's a compute center, kind of like a data center, but it, it we have machines that are dedicated to doing computation instead of um, you know persistent services like a data center would have. And um, you know we have I think over two million cores just in this building. Um, for, for all of our computing needs. And we have some of the largest machines in the world here that people run these these parallel applications on. Huh.
0: Two main cores, huh? That's a lot of yeah, cores. Yeah, we
2: have <laughs> uh, one machine with one and a half million, which is number
0: four, I think, in the world now.
2: Wow. Um, so that's, that's Sequoia. And we're installing the new machine right now. Um, it's called Sierra. Um, it's a big uh, IBM system. It's, uh, it's with Power 9 processors and, and NVIDIA GPUs
0: this is highly specialized equipment for highly specialized tasks
2: yeah it, that that's true um, it i'd seems say that so. you buy a you buy a different kind of machine for hpc than you do for like the cloud but you know some aspects of running a data center and a compute center are very similar like managing power temperature stuff like that um, security i would say that the security yeah ex- exactly that that's important we've been rolling out meltdown patches all
1: across the facility i was just going to ask <laughs> and, that
2: yeah <laughs> Yeah, and and the interesting thing, so we and we see performance hits from that. So we try to optimize that.
1: How big are the performance hits that you're seeing?
2: Um,
1: there are some reports would be up to thirty percent, but it doesn't sound yeah, like that's I think necessarily that's the case.
2: In line, depending on the workload. Um, yeah, I think it really depends on what application you're running because it's it's that system call overhead that you're mm-hmm. that you're paying for. So you know, we we have an interest in high performance computing because there's there's basically never an end to the computing capacity that we need to simulate the stuff that we're we're looking into. And so, you know, most of the place where we get into architecture around here is in um, optimizing the performance of applications. So, you know, we have people who work with the application teams and they say, okay, your simulation does this. How do I, um, you know, how can I make that execute more efficiently on the hardware? Um, and then uh, we also look at procurement. So we're like, we have this workload um, we know that we need to run these things. So what's the next machine um, that we're going to buy? And so, you know, the, I, I was talking about Sequoia. Sequoia is the, I guess, 16 uh, realized 20 uh, peak petaflop machine that we have on the floor right now. Our next machine is going to be a 125 petaflop machine. And so um, the whole procurement process People get together and they look at the architectures from from different vendors, and they say, you know, how is our workload going to execute on this? And so I think, you know, in the future you're going to have to think more and more about matching the, uh, you know, the applications to uh, the architecture. And we had to think about that because our next machine is a big GPU system. So I mean, here's here's an example that that probably gets at the, kind of the heart of this this Moore's law stuff. Sequoia is the previous generation machine. Um, it's about hundred thousand nodes. Each uh, node um, has a, a multi-core chip on it and they're all PowerPC chips. And and so, you know, our workloads could execute pretty effectively on that. Um, and and it was fairly easy to scale things out to a large number of processors. Um, the GPUs have kind of won in terms of, that's the um, thing that has an, a market out there for, for games and for other applications. And so, um, you know they we're, we have to ride along with the much bigger market for commodity computing and so our current machine is only four thousand nodes um it's got power 9 processors on them and it's got four gpus per node um and so that's you know in terms of number of nodes um it's a much smaller machine than sequoia but it's way faster and it has you know it's uh, it's 125 petaflops versus 20. and and so that's where you know the gpus will win but for us, that's a big shift because we haven't been, we haven't used GPUs um, as extensively before, and so now we have to take our applications, import them, so they can actually use the four GPUs per node, and that's a
1: challenge. Hmm. Give us the, uh, give us an idea of what range we, what, what, what range we're looking at here, U.S. dollars for the big On machines. The, yeah, like the this? big machines. Are we talking like hundreds yeah. of thousands of dollars, but millions of dollars, tens of millions? What's the order of magnitude?
2: So for most of the big machines, like if you're going to get a number one on the top 500 list, which is like the place where they have the list of the top supercomputers, um, is probably like around has been, you know, 200 million dollars, at least in the the DOE um, for the system. Um, And that's, you know, procured over the course of like five years. We start five years out. We talk to vendors and we get them to um, pitch um, they, they write a proposal that says, you know, here's, here's how we could meet your specs. And then we have a big meeting where we go and we look at, you know, how, how they project this will work on our workloads. They do experiments with some of our like applications. Um, and you know, we also look at the other specs on the machine and, and different parameters, you know, how much memory is it going to have, um, how much memory per node, how many nodes are we going to have to use GPUs? Are we going to have to use like Intel Xeon Phi chips, um, or, or other things? Um, and then we pick the one that we think um, will best meet our needs going
1: forward. Mm. How would you like to close that deal, Adam. Two hundred million. That's a lot of money. Be the salesman on the front end of that thing. Yeah, that's, that's a, a that's a long sales process. You go out to dinner after you make that sale. Yeah. And if
2: you want the details on our current <laughs> machine, there's a nice <laughs> article at Next Platform by our our CTO, who you know okay. who is in charge of that procurement process.
1: Awesome. Well, we'll make sure we link it up in the show notes. Alright Todd, I have a I have a suggested project for you for the for the NIF okay. folks after you guys finish that star you're working on. I'm sure they'll listen your to The next me. project. Yes. <laughs> um Sharks with laser beams on their heads. I feel like people have come up
2: with that idea before.
1: Just for your consideration. Well, simulate that a few times. I think uh I think are you'll you sure, it are,
2: you, are you sure no one else is working on it?
1: Well, I think you'd be bleeding edge.
2: <laughs> All right. <laughs> With simulation, we can make it better. We can make more effective sharks with laser beams. That sounds scary, though. I think we should think about the consequences of doing that. Looking to learn more about the cloud or Google Cloud Platform?
1: But you don't know where to begin?
2: Check out the Google Cloud Platform weekly podcast at gcbpodcast.com, where Google developer advocates, Melanie Warwick, Hello. and myself, Mark Mandel, answer questions, get in the weeds, and talk to GCP teams, customers, and partners about best practices from security to machine learning, Kubernetes, open source, and more.
1: Listen to gcppodcast.com and learn what's new in cloud in about 30 minutes a week.
2: Hear from technologists all across Google like Vince Cerf, Peter Norvig, and Dr. Fei-Fei Li, all about lessons learned, trends, and cool things happening with our technology.
1: Every week, gcppodcast.com takes questions submitted by our audience and we will answer them live on the podcast.
2: Subscribe to the podcast at gcppodcast.com, follow us on Twitter at gcppodcast, or search for Google Cloud Platform Podcast on your favorite
0: podcast app and by GoCD. GoCD is an open source continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. GoCD provides continuous delivery out of the box with its built-in pipelines, advanced traceability, and value stream visualization. With GoCD, you can easily model, orchestrate, and visualize complex workflows from end to end it supports modern infrastructure with elastic on-demand agents and cloud deployments. And their plugin ecosystem ensures GoCD will work well in your unique environment. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.org changelog. It's free to use and has professional support for enterprise add-ons available from ThoughtWorks. Once again, gocd.org changelog. So I guess the question I have is like, if you've got this $200 million computer, right, it, it's gotta be something that's pretty uh, demanding, right? People are going to want to use this thing because you're not going to want to not get the return on investment for that thing. So like, what's, what's it like scheduling, managing a project that's on it? How do you schedule time for it? Do you have to predict how long your project will take? The compute time, like give us a day-to-day operation of using one of these computers.
2: OK, so I mean, I can't speak necessarily to what the the actual application guys would would do because I'm not uh, I'm a performance guy. So I work with them to help speed things up. But I mean, the the usage model is basically you have to you have to write a proposal to get time on these things um, for the bulk of our workload. Um, and this is the case for other de- Department of Energy laboratories, too. Um, you have to write something up that says, you know, I have the scientific problem. Um, it really needs. A lot of CPU cycles. Um, it's not possible without that. And um, here's what it would enable. This is why it's worth, you know, the time on the machines. And so um, those go through, you know, here and and at Argonne and at Oak Ridge, all these other labs. Um, a competitive process where reviewers look at the proposals, they evaluate does it have merit, um, and then once that's done, you get assigned hours according to um, what you asked for you know, on the machine. So you get CPU hours. Um, it, that's millions of CPU hours or or more, depending on what the project is. And, and the CPU hour is measured in terms. I, th- I think we may be doing node hours now. I'm not sure if it's CPU hours or node hours, but basically it's just a measure of how much how much compute power you're allowed to use. Um, so that's how we justify it. and And the machines stay busy all the time uh, because we have science projects that that need them for for their workloads. We have more work than um, the computers could ever possibly do but they are doing it fast so it enables new science Um, so i think in a given day at the lab um, there's a bunch of users we have three thousand users for the facility Um, some here some are collaborators some are at universities that we collaborate with Um, they're running jobs uh, applications it's like a big batch system you log into it you say here's the job i want to run here's how many cpus it needs um or how many nodes it needs and um here's how much time it needs to do that approximately and then the we have a scheduler that just goes and farms those jobs out to the system Um, Hmm. and so the people at the compute center um we, we look at what's going on um we we try to manage the scheduler so that it has a good policy for all these different users um and we have performance teams who you know help the application teams actually optimize their, um, their code to, to run on the machine. And that's an iterative process, right? So for a machine like the new Sierra machine I was talking about, um, we'll typically have a smaller machine in advance of that. Uh, that's similar, you know, we have a power eight GPU system instead of a power nine GPU system that we've been testing on. Um, and they'll get their code running on that, um, in preparation for the new system. And and in that process, we'll look at we'll we'll run profilers on the code. We will look at you know traces to see if it's communicating effectively between all the nodes, Um, and and we'll help out the application teams by saying you know you should you should modify this or we need to change this algorithm. I think um, one of the things that we've been helping people with a lot lately, um, and especially with the GPUs and also with other centers using more exotic chips like Xeon Phi, um, which is like an Intel many core chip it's like a 64 core intel chip um we need the same code to execute well on all these different architectures and that's not an easy process so if you have a numerically intensive code you write it one way it might execute well on the cpu but not on the gpu um and and we'd ideally like to have one code that the the application developers maintain um and have that um have essentially some other layer handle the mapping of that down to the architecture. So, um, one of the things we've developed is, uh, we call them performance portability frameworks. We have this thing called Raja. Um, it's a C++ library where, um, you can write a loop, um, instead of a for loop, you write a for all you pass a Lambda to it. Um, and you pass that for all a template parameter that says, Hey, I want you to execute on the GPU or I want you to execute on the CPU. Um, and that allows them to tune effectively for different architectures. They can kind of swap out the the parallelism model under there. And so, you know, tuning that, getting the compilers to optimize it well for different machines. Um, that's the kind of thing the performance folks have been working on.
1: Hmm. So you answered the the one question that I was thinking when you talked about scheduling is will do these things ever sit idle? Because that would be like the worst use of a huge, you know, massive yeah. powerful, expensive computer is idle time, right? So it's I guess it's heartening to find out that there's so much work to do that that's not a problem whatsoever. In fact, the problem's the opposite: is that you need to start procuring some more to continue, you know, yeah. more and more research.
0: Yeah. The other side too. It sounds like you do a dashboard or something like that. Do you do you operate? Do you ever see the computer? Do you actually get next to it, or do you just operate whatever you need to do through some sort of like, I don't know, like portal or something like that?
2: I mean, we have people who get next to the machine, and we give tours of the the facility uh, to folks who visit the lab sometimes.
0: But you don't have to like put your USB stick into it to like put your program on it and run it, right? You're like no, no, okay. punch cards.
2: Okay, yeah, yeah. no, it is, so I, basically, I mean, these things look like servers, like you'd be used to, right? Like you 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 have a desktop machine. You SSH into the, the computer, and then there's a resource manager running on it. So like Slurm is the open source resource manager that we use. Uh, it's developed here, um, and now it's got a company, SkedMD, around it. Um, and the users would say, you know, sbatch um, command line. And then that they would take that command line, put it in the queue, and then eventually run it on however many nodes they asked for. Um, or, you know, srun if they want to do it interactively and wait for some nodes to be available. Um, and you know, the, the wait times can get pretty big if the, if the queues are deep. So, Uh
0: um, so yeah. So you get assigned hours, but you don't get assigned like nine in the morning to 10 in the morning. You get just hours and you're in a queue. Whenever your queue comes up, you execute.
2: Right. You get a bank, um, that, that comes with your project. We call it a bank. That's how many total CPU hours you have. Um, if you submit a job, um, then you know when you submit it you have to say here's how long i expect it to run for and the scheduler will kill it after that much time um and then uh you nodes you want and then it runs for that long and however you know the length of time it runs times the number of nodes it used um you know times the number of cpus per node is how much they subtract from your bank at the end of that Hmm. and so effectively you know you you get a few you know, multi-million CPU all- hour allocation. Um, you can run that out pretty quickly if you run, you know, giant jobs that run for a long time.
1: So Todd, I first met you at the Sustain event last spring, almost summertime, I suppose, at GitHub headquarters. You were very involved in that, and in fact, that's when you hopped into our Slack for the first time and helped bring some people from the lab to that event. And so you have yep. this interest and passion around sustaining open source because that's why you were there and involved and um, we appreciated your help, but t- tell us in the audience the intersection of where open source comes in with the work you're doing with the supercomputers and the lab work.
2: Sure. So I'd say two places in um, are they're, they're big places. I, I think you know, for our computer center, the, the folks who run it, we prefer open source for, for nearly everything um, for the resource manager. For the file systems, um, you know, we have big parallel file systems like Lustre. Um, for even, you know, the uh, the compilers that we use, we're we're investing in uh, in Clang or in LLVM to create a new um, Flang to do Fortran um, for some of our codes. And um, and so, you know, I would say that the the majority of what we do at the compute center is is uh, is open source. In terms of the infrastructure that we're using, our machines run Linux, um, and we have a team downstairs that manages uh, a distribution for HPC. Uh, we call it TOS, which is a TriLab open source stack. Um, that's basically uh, Linux distribution with with our custom packages on top of it, and that's how we manage our deployment for the for the machines. Hmm. So that's one way, um, and then we have people working on you know that. The people who work on those projects um, or like ZFS um, is is used in Luster. Um, we have a guy who who actually did the ZFS on Linux port and, and manages that community. And, huh. you know, I think we get a lot out of that. Um, it's Brian Bellendorf at Livermore. Not the Brian Bellendorf who's doing blockchain stuff, but actually another Brian Bellendorf. <laughs> the same name. Yeah, there's two Brian Bellendorfs in open source. Wow.
1: Same spelling and everything?
2: Yeah, everything. Huh. Yeah, he said that they met once and talked to each other. <laughs> that is and,
1: That is you know, confusing. We just had the other Brian Bellendorf on the show. We interviewed him at yep. OSCON last year. Mm-hmm. About Listen to that. About Hyperledger.
2: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so this is ZFS. So there's the ZFS Brian Bellendorf, and there's the Hyperledger Brian Bellendorf. Okay. One of them is in the building with me. <laughs> yep. Um, you know, we were talking about how we we procure these big machines, um, and there's, there's a contract associated with that. Um, in that, we we allocate some time for the vendor to contribute to open source, uh, software. We require that as part of the contract. And so they work with us, um, and they, they make sure that our software and other software that we care about from the DOE and, and elsewhere actually works on the machine. So that's another way we interface with the, with the open source community.
0: On that note, then it sounds like you're pretty intimate in, in terms of like what in, in involved in like the process or what's in, what's on these machines do you have good relationships with those who sysadmin admin these machines or do you do you as a you know collective are you able to say well we prefer this flavor of linux and you know it seems like since you choose open source you have some sort of feedback loop into like preferences that everyone can put on this machine and do all these fun things you do
2: yeah so I, I- at this center, I mean, we the there's a software development group, there's the system administration group. They're all in the in the building that I'm in, which is attached to the compute center. Um, we there's a lot of crosstalk um, okay. between those different areas, and then we also talk to the researchers, right? Um, uh, who who run applications on on the machines. Um, yeah, I would say that, you know, Livermore Computing, at least, like on the infrastructure side, is definitely involved in, you know, choosing what open source we want to run on the machines and when we maybe don't want to go open source. Like we run proprietary compilers because they're fast, for example. Right. Um, but we also do things like invest in the open source compilers to try to say, you know, we want an open source alternative so that we have something that we can run on the machine that will work and and work well.
0: The reason I ask that is because it seems like, you know, the application process is very protected to manage what to manage the the load on those machines and the time. And so I just wondered if, you know, the involvement of what's on the machines and who manages them and what's, you know, all that stuff is just as protected. If it's it seems like one size a little bit more loose, but to get the time, it's a big ceremony and a big process and you know it could be well, gatekeeped to some degree.
2: Yeah, I guess I would say that like HPC, I mean it's a research computing field, right? Um, it's it's mostly researchers who need this much compute power. Um, and and so the calls for proposals are not unlike the calls for funding um, that people put out for academia. Um, there are open ones. And and so like the Office of Science Labs uh, have the Insight program um, where you, know, you can apply for time on Oak Ridge and Argonne's machines, which are similarly large, if not Oak Ridge has a larger machine than ours right now. And for us, um, our customers are slightly different because we work with um, we work at Los Alamos National Lab and Sandia National Lab, and and so our proposal processes, at least on on like the classified side, um, are mostly between those labs because they're about you know the 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 weapons program and stuff like that. Um, but then there's you know th- there are other places where you can get time um, for basic science runs. So like when we get a new machine like Sierra, uh, we put it out there. And we let, you know, early code teams, like the the guys who maybe have like an important science application that isn't as complicated as maybe some of our production codes who can get on there early and, you know, show off the machine. We let them run. There's a few months at the beginning where we let them um, use the time with allocations there. So mm-hmm. I, I guess I'd say there's a lot of different ways to get time on on the machines. And, you know, it's it's pretty low overhead. It's not, you know, quite like writing a full academic proposal. It's pretty open.
0: And we're on this open source kick. I was just curious how that flavored in. Cause as you're describing your choices and, you know, and I guess the primary choice of choosing open source and that's your preference, it seemed like, mm-hmm. you know, while there's a lot of process around the proposal flow, uh, True. maybe there's a little bit more cross, like as you mentioned, at, you know, at like involvement with other teams that have access to these super expensive machines. Like that's a, that's a hu- huge privilege because, like, I don't have access to a two hundred million dollar machine. I can barely That's afford true. one that costs seven. You know, like, and I gotta like borrow money from grandma or something like that. You know,
1: <laughs> so seven what? Seven million k thousand? Oh. <laughs> you said two hundred million, and then you said you could barely afford one that costs. Oh, well, I assumed seven. everybody thought so that I was in the is the thousands. The, like, I, I assumed the denominator is same the same. Grandma ain't got millions, man. <laughs> you can quote me I had on the
2: that. Same question. <laughs>
1: I guess what we're trying to say is, Todd, is how we're going to, how well, can we get some time on this computer? Yeah. <laughs> We've got some well, research. You have
2: to have a, well, so, yeah. So I guess if, if I had to boil it down to something, you have to have justification for getting on the machine. You have to be able to show that you can make scientific progress with your, with your hours. So that's what the process is about. But I, I guess. Sharks I mean,
1: and lasers, man. Sharks with freaking <laughs> laser beams on their heads. I told you my justification already.
2: Ill-tempered sea bass.
1: Oh, <laughs> boy. Yeah. I guess the other elephant in the room, Todd, for justifications, and you, you addressed this to us uh, in the break, but please for the audience' sake, because I know that we probably have a fair amount of Bitcoin miners uh, listening, and so I think that is the other thing that has people kind of, you know, putting their uh, pinky up, up to their mouth. CPU time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What about Bitcoin mining on these rigs?
2: Okay. So uh, well, that we're not allowed to mine Bitcoin on these machines. It's not legal <laughs> to use government machines. <laughs> to mine for bitcoins, but even if you did, um, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be worth it. If you look at what people are using for Bitcoin mining, a lot of that is like custom chips. Uh, they're very low power and only do hashing. So you'll, you'll do way better investing in that than you will in, in one of our machines. Hmm. So, and I think at, at some other compute center people have been, have been fired for, for trying to oh, mine I, Bitcoin on, the, on really? the machines. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. There's, you can Google for news stories about that. Um, but I guess I want to be a little clear about um, on the openness front. So, you know, the application for time is separate from the software that you actually run on the machine, right? So, mm-hmm. like, we have a lot of open source projects that live for much longer than any allocation or any machine, really. And and there are a lot of people who work on those, and those are open. Um, some of them, you know, you can even run on your laptop, um, and, and scientists do. So, like, a lot of development for these machines does happen on people's laptops, and then they scale the program up to run on the big machine. So, you know, there, there's a lot of open, open source software development that happens. um, You know, even if the process for getting access to a big machine isn't open and you can run that open source software on, you know, the machine that you do have Mm -hmm. for, you know, seven (laughs) K.
1: Or or less. Seven (laughs) K.
2: Yes.
1: (laughs) Your grandma could run that, Adam. That's right. Grammys can run that. So what about the open source community? Um, seems like anytime when I think of a you know a government operation, you think especially with the security you know constraints and you know a lot of the quote unquote red tape seems like actually you know deep involvement with a community that's built on openness and freedom and all these things that are kind of opposite of like secrecy and closed. Is there any um give or take there or is there is there red tape? are there issues around that or has it all been you know pretty easy in terms of integrating? your open source work into the greater open source community
2: so i'd say that historically livermore is pretty good about open source i mean we started using linux clusters like in the late 90s um and you know we've we've been working on the operating system for that we've developed like slurm the resource manager has been open source for a long time so putting stuff out there has not been um Such a problem. There is a release process that you have to go through that's kind of cumbersome, but once you do it, um, you know, like we did for SPAC, the package manager I work on, um, you can just you can work out in the open on that as long as you stay within a certain project scope. Um and so yeah, yeah, I mean there is some red tape around that. Obviously, we don't want to release some of the things that we develop. Um, but then again, mm-hmm. you know, we, we use a lot of open source internally and benefit from the broader open source community. So I would say that D- DOE has a pretty active open source development ecosystem and and we leverage things that are developed by other labs and other labs develop or leverage things that are developed by us. And, and I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of back and forth. Um, I would say that like the... The interaction model on the on the projects is maybe not quite the same as like a large infrastructure project like i don't know like kubernetes or, or docker or something like that just because i mean it's it's scientific computing so people get funded yeah. to solve a particular problem not to develop software um, so there are you know sustainability issues around um, how much software development time can we actually put on this project mm-hmm. um on the production side, though, um, the the facilities, I mean, their job is to keep the center running and to to do it efficiently. So that's I think that's why you see a lot of open source coming out of there. But mm-hmm. you know, then again, there ha- there are long lived research projects that are are very widely used. So like one good example of that is in um, like the math uh, library community. So for large scale parallel solvers. Um, the different labs have teams working on that stuff. And there, there are some solver libraries like Livermore has hyper, um, Sandia has Trilinos and, you know, Berkeley lab has some solvers. Um, and also things like finite element frameworks, things for meshing and for, for building these big, uh, models of of physical systems. So like Livermore has a library called MFEM uh, that, that has a big open source community around it. Uh, or, well, not big by, you know, JavaScript standards, but big by scientific computing standards. Right. Um, yeah, so some of them operate like communities, I would say, and then others kind of tend to, you know, stay within a particular group or, um, you know, they they maybe don't have a, a cross lab community. Um, it it just depends on on the software and and what the the funding and the interaction model has been historically. I do think like more community um, could help a lot of projects if if people started thinking more in terms of like how do I sustain this over time? How do I get how do I get more contributors? I don't necessarily think that we build research software with um growing contributors in mind
0: hmm. i think it's interesting that you got the the three i took note of earlier the one you obviously talked about on request for commits back that's the product mm-hmm. you work on primarily yes uh then you've got slurm which i think is a workload manager if i got you correct that's actually what you interface with to put your products onto a supercomputer is that right
2: yeah it runs the jobs it runs the jobs it does and the then- scheduling
0: yeah, and you got Luster, which I was just noticing down in the trademark is a Seagate Technology trademark. So that means that that's the file system. So these things are important enough for you to have open source projects alongside them. That I guess are you know more specific to say a supercomputer scenario versus say a laptop scenario.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we we have to pay um, for open source development for. You know, like a parallel file system that'll run fast on our machine. We have to keep the computers working. So, right. I, yeah, a lot of the infrastructure projects are aimed at that.
0: Seems like some of this stuff should come with a $200 million computer.
2: <laughs> well, so. so <laughs> I mean, I'm so just thinking yeah. like. <laughs> yeah. So well, it does d- to some extent. Like, so, Did you, you get a t shirt or anything? We haven't gotten t shirts, you do get a system, mural. Okay. <laughs> you can get a mural painted on the side of the machine. So, like the if you look at like the NERSC machines, like they they have a picture oh, of cool. Grace Hopper painted on the side of their machine. Oh, um, cool. But but so I will. There is a lot of software that comes from the vendor. So like Cray provides a whole programming environment with their system. Um, it's it's not necessarily open in the same sense. Um, if you buy an IBM system, you they, they they will bundle like their file system, which is GPFS. Um, it's a competitor for for Luster. It's proprietary. Um, and, and you know which one you go with depends on uh, what the what what value do you get out of the procurement? Right. Which one do you think is going to perform better? I'd say performance drives a lot of the decisions at the procurement level. Um, but you know, openness is also a big factor.
0: Does it come with hard drives?
2: Um, yeah. So the the system would come with I mean a parallel file system, right? So it's not just hard drives. It's like racks and racks and racks of hard drives.
0: Right. I was going to make a joke to say like the you, when you get it, do you just wet uh-huh. the drives and put your own stuff on it, like you do any old do you do it at scale essentially? Like when I get a machine, even a Mac, I sometimes will just wipe it and put my a brand new version of OS 10 on there, or Mac OS now because I just like it. You know, I just do that. You know, my own way. So you know?
2: Yes, we we yeah we do that effectively with our um, Linux clusters. So That's we fair.
0: we build our own
2: distribution, like I was saying, and and so um, we have a toss image that we run across those um for the bigger machines like so for what we call our advanced technology machines that are in these you know large procurement packages um you know it's it's much more vendor driven in this because it's bleeding edge so we rely a lot more on the vendor um to uh, to provide the software stack although i mean our you know the next machine's going to be linux so it's the the machine's for the os at least run linux
0: which uh, which flavor of linux
2: Uh, we run, so across the center here, we run rel. Um, so that, that's the, the distro that typically is at the, it's at the base of our TOS, um, distribution. And then, um, some machines run SUSE, but not, not at Livermore, like the Cray machines, I think use SUSE as their base distro.
0: Um, they
2: also build their own kind of custom lightweight versions of Linux for the actual compute nodes. They want to reduce, um, system noise. So they don't want a lot of context switching going on and stuff that would slow down the application.
0: Let me say RHEL, that's R-H-E-L, right?
2: Yeah, a Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Gotcha.
0: Yeah. Cool. This is pretty interesting to to kind of peel back the layers of a supercomputing research laboratory yeah. like this and, you know, mm-hmm. see what, how open source fits in, how, you know, $200 million, what it buys, you know, how you procure time, how you proposed time, how you interface with other teams that manage open source software, how you determine preferences. And I mean, this is an interesting conversation that's not exactly the typical episode of the change log. So hopefully listeners, you're, you really enjoyed this. And if you did, uh, there's a way you can tell us, you can either hop in GitHub. So github.com slash the changelog slash ping. Or join the community. Go to change.com slash members. Was it? No, it's community slash community. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Go there, which is what Todd did one day. And he's like, hey, uh, y'all are doing this conference called Sustain. I'm going to go and I want to bring some friends. And wow, this is an awesome community. So maybe Todd, to close this out, what, what can you say about hanging out in Slack?
2: Hanging out in Slack. With us. Um, with Slack. Hey, so I, I do that because it's, uh, it, it's nice to be in touch with the. I guess, well, with I guess a different open source community, right? So I, I think the changelog is is kind of heavy on on web development. I used to be a web developer before I came to the DOE, so I, I like to keep up with that stuff and see what's going on um, out in the cloud, as well as over here in the DOE.
0: So it's it's been a nice time. Well, Todd, so thank you for coming on the show today, man. It's uh, we're huge fans of yours, and uh, just thanks so much for schooling us on Moore's law. Appreciate it. Cool. That's it for this show. Thank you for tuning in. If you haven't been to changelog.com in a while, go there, check it out. We just launched a brand new version of the site. Go to changelog.com and subscribe to get the latest news and podcasts for developers. Get that in your inbox every single week. We make it super easy to keep up with developer news that matters. I want to thank our sponsors, Rollbar, DigitalOcean, GCP Podcast, and GoCD. And Bandwidth for ChangeLog is provided by Fastly. So head to fastly.com to learn more. Air monitoring is by Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com. And we host everything we do on Linode cloud servers at the linode.com changelog. Check them out, support this show. The changelog is hosted by myself, Adam Stakoviak, and Jared Santo. Editing is by Jonathan Youngblood. Music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelog.com or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. See you next week.